Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. It's great to see you all here this morning, braving the weather to be here with us. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 3 in just a moment, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Um, if you didn't bring a Bible with you, we put black uh, hardback Bibles under the seats around you. Uh, feel free to grab one of those. Those are there for you. Um, we're going to start in Matthew 3 in just a moment um, to get started. So if you're visiting with us here today, uh, as a church, we're working through the foundational truths of the Christian faith. Um, we're walking through our statement of faith as a church, looking at these foundational non-negotiable truths um, for those who proclaim to be in Christ. And so we've made it over halfway through our statement of faith. And starting today and again next Sunday, we're going to be working through uh, what the church calls the ordinances of our faith. Uh, today, baptism, and next Sunday, communion. So let me just shed a little light on what we mean by the word ordinances before we even get started this morning. So um, the word comes from the, from the word ordained. So what we're looking at are these specific acts of worship, these tangible, visible, symbolic acts of worship that the Lord Jesus Christ ordained himself for the church. If you look at the Christian church historically, there are a lot of things that we add to our worship, to stir our affections, to, uh, to maybe launch our minds into thinking the right way. If you look at the church historically, we've added a lot of things through means of art, whether it be pictures on the wall, stained glass, emblems, things to remind us and stir us of what it is that we believe. Uh, in the modern day church, we add things like uh, instruments, uh, sound systems, videos, lighting, things that, that we hope in some way stir our affections uh, for Jesus. And so um, what we're not talking about are all the add-ons to the church historically, whether you're coming from the medieval period or 2015. What we're talking about are the basic foundational acts of worship that should be present at any church that proclaims to be Christian, whether it's a remote village in a tribal region or a huge multi-story church in downtown Dallas. There should be these two things expressed in worship if it's truly a church of the Christian faith, one being baptism and the second being communion. Now, it's interesting, historically, both of these ordinances actually were present before Jesus commissions them for the church. So communion, as we'll see next Sunday, um, began as a feast in the Old Testament called the Passover. And so Jesus takes what was already in place and then transitions it for the new church. And then uh, also the same thing with baptism, even though it doesn't show up a lot in the Old Testament, we just know historically that the Jews were using baptism as a mode to express conversion from Gentile into Judaism. So, uh, and John the Baptist was on the scene baptizing before Jesus himself was baptized. So what we're going to do today is start in Matthew 3, where Jesus himself inaugurates baptism, uh, first for himself and then for the church, and then move forward from there. Uh, we are going to have a baptism in the service in just a few moments. We're excited about that. Um, but before we get there, let's spend some time in the Word. So starting in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13, we read these words. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to baptize him. This is John the Baptist, not John the disciple. Verse 14, John would have prevented him. So there was a hesitation in John saying, I need to be baptized by you and do you come to me? So John the Baptist, he hesitated for a moment in his humanity, realizing that the Son of God has just come to him, asking him to baptize him. And he recognized, I'm not worthy to baptize you. Verse 15, Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting or right for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he, being John, consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, 
The heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Now, when we get to uh, the baptism in the Christian church, there are different ways that it is expressed. Some uh, more formal, some less formal, some indoors, some outdoors. Some hold firmly to a full immersion in baptism, which is what we do here as a church. The word baptized means to be immersed, and we see that Jesus came up out of the water. So different ways you can express baptism. But what we're looking at today are the foundational truths that regardless of which way you express it, whether you go down to the pond or the river, or it's in a, in a baptistry elevated in the sanctuary, surrounded by a pipe organ and, and stained glass windows, whichever mode it is, that we start with the same foundational truths from the Bible. And so... What we're seeing is that even though baptism was in place, Jesus himself came to fulfill all righteousness, in other words, to fulfill the complete plan of his Father, and part of that plan was he himself being baptized, inaugurating baptism for those who would follow him. And so in this particular um, scene from Matthew 3, what Jesus is saying is, I'm submitting to the Father here. So we know that even for Jesus, baptism is an act of submission. He's submitting to his Father's plan, the Father's will. But it's not only an act of obedience, it's also a public proclamation, both from the person being baptized, right, saying, I'm following God's plan for my life, but also we hear from the Father, right, speaking here in Jesus' baptism, placing a stamp of identity on Jesus, saying, that's my son in whom I am well pleased. And so when we step back and ask about the essence of baptism, what, what is it? What is it supposed to be representing or symbolizing here? We understand it to be a public declaration, so whoever would step into the baptismal, whether it's outside at the pond or in here on a Sunday morning or at another church, they're publicly proclaiming something about their lives or declaring something about what they believe to be true. And at the same time, it's a mark of identity from the Father saying, this is my child in whom I am well pleased. We look at the end of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus talks about baptism as a primary piece of our mission to build the church, okay? Matthew 28, verse 19, Jesus gives these instructions. He says, go, therefore, and make disciples of the nations. Church, that's what you're supposed to do. Go to your neighborhoods, go to your friends, your family, your workplaces. Some of you need to go beyond that. Need you to go to Judea, to Samaria, to the ends of the earth. But here's your mission. Go make disciples. Go make followers of me. And then look at what he says baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. So two primary elements of our task as a church as we make followers of Jesus is to baptize them and to teach them. So we know it's an important part of our spiritual journey of obedience. Jesus himself was baptized, then he says to his church, go make disciples and baptize and teach. If you're taking notes with us today, Jesus initiated the ordinance of baptism and instructed the church to continue baptizing believers as an outward sign of their inward faith and adoption into God's family. Every boy or man who comes into a baptismal here or anywhere else who's publicly professing their faith is saying, I am now a son of the Most High God. Every young lady or woman who comes into the baptismal is publicly proclaiming, I am a daughter of the Most High God. And so there's this public declaration, this pledge of allegiance, if you will. This is who I am now. Well, as we get into um, the launch of the church, Acts 2, 
We covered this in brevity um, a few weeks ago. Um, so here's how the church launches. The disciples get together after Jesus ascends. They're talking. They're praying. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit of God fills them and fills the room that they're all praying in and just rattles the place. We talked about this even last week. Peter steps up. A lot of people walking by are trying to figure out what's going on. Preaches a sermon and points to Jesus. At the end of his sermon, the people are pierced and cut to the heart. And they say, what, what do we need to do? Well, how do we respond to this message that we just heard about Jesus? So in Acts 2, starting in verse 38, Peter said to them, here's what you need to do. Repent. First, repent. Meaning what? Turn from the way you were going and now come and follow Jesus. Turn from your former way of life, your former motivations, the, the way you used to think about the world. Turn from that, and now look at the, world, at, the way, at the world the way Jesus looks at the world. Adopt his motivations. Allow his spirit to stir in you righteousness. Repent, turn, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Verse 41, so those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. We've got, uh, we've got eight folks going to be baptized today within two services, and just logistically trying to plan it all out and make sure we're, we're ready for all that. I can't imagine, right, at this point what this looks like. 3,000 souls coming into faith in Jesus and then expressing it publicly in baptism. What a fantastic day uh, for church. And so... It's important, though, for us to acknowledge here what, what's happening in the text is this. If we're not careful, we as human beings, we're prone to shift towards our own works. We are. We're prone to shift towards a list of do's and don'ts when it comes to our faith. And we forget that our list of do's and don'ts, our efforts, our works are actually antithetical to faith. They're the opposite of faith. Faith means to believe, right? So we're to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we're not careful, we'll make a list of do's and don'ts on how to become a Christian. And so I like how this is recorded here. Those who received his word. Not just everybody who heard it, but those who internally received it and responded to this beautiful gospel proclamation from Peter. Those who received it were baptized and about, and were added that day about 3,000 souls. If you continue to read through the book of Acts, understand the church is emerging, things are formalizing. It's a narrative and, and there are a lot of times where we see, like in Acts 2, where it seems like the, the, the apostles don't really know what to do. They're just following the lead of the Holy Spirit. In Acts um, 8, what happens? If you'll turn to Acts 8 with me. Um, so Acts chapter 7 ends with uh, persecution of uh, Stephen. Stephen is stoned publicly for his faith. And then in the beginning of Acts 8, then the disciples are dispersed based on the persecution that's taking place. And so Philip is one of those who's dispersed, and Philip just goes on mission. I love this about Philip. There's a story about him and an Ethiopian where God leads him to run up next to this chariot. This Ethiopian eunuch's just traveling. He's, he's reading from the book of Isaiah, and, and Philip just goes up kind of jogging next to him. Hey, do you understand what you're reading in there? And just, right, goes on and shares the gospel, and the, and the Ethiopian comes to a halt and says, wow, what's preventing me from being baptized? There's a river right there. And Philip's like, nothing. I'm sure he's probably catching his breath, right? Nothing. <laughs> Let's, let's give me a second. All right, let's go. And he was baptized. Well, early on in the chapter in Acts 8, uh, Philip is traveling. In verse 12, it says, But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God 
in the name of Jesus Christ. So those who were there that believed Philip, they were baptized, both men and women. This isn't just for men. It's men and women. Even Simon believed. If you know anything about the the history of this context, Simon was a sorcerer. He was a magician, if you will. And so even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Just one little snapshot of an event in the church moving forward. And Philip is here, and he's proclaiming the gospel. People are believing in Jesus and then being baptized. Baptism is an outward expression that a person has placed their faith in Jesus alone for salvation. That's an important part of understanding baptism. Oftentimes we'll speak with somebody who became a believer, maybe at a young age, maybe in a hotel room, uh, maybe watching television, maybe just sitting alone with the word, right? And become truly a follower of Jesus. I've, I've asked for forgiveness. Jesus has forgiven me. The weights have fallen. I'm now a new creature in Christ. But then a time goes by before being baptized. And so somebody might come to me and ask, do I need to be saved again before I'm baptized? No. The answer is you simply need to follow in obedience, whether it's right 30 seconds later, like Philip, or it's 30 years later, as some others who may follow me. The point is this, that there has been an inward transition in your heart as you've trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone, whether you're six years old or 60 years old. What you're saying is, publicly, my allegiance is in Jesus, and I've given my life to him. In the same way I'm being submerged into the water to to symbolize his death, my life, my old life, I'm now dead to my old life, and I'm now walking in a newness of life. Baptism is also an outward expression that a person desires to walk in obedience to Jesus. It's an important part of the equation. This didn't come from Peter. It didn't come from man. It didn't didn't come from the church. This was Jesus' ordination of an act of worship. And he told the church to go out and to baptize. So every person who enters into the waters, whether it's running water of of a river or a heated baptismal with circulation pumps in a church, either way... What the person is saying is, I am yielding my life to follow Jesus. He's the one who commanded me to do this. I'm not doing it right to express simply my allegiance to an ideology or a church or a religion. I am ultimately here to say, I'm, I'm following Jesus with my life. And he asked me to do this. And so it's a beautiful expression of obedience to Jesus. Now let's talk a little bit more about the symbolism of baptism. And so we're going to go to 1 Peter chapter 3 for this. If you want to turn there, this will be towards the end of your New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 3, um, Peter brings up baptism, and I love his approach here because he starts with a beautiful reminder of the gospel, what it is that we believe, and then he points to baptism and explains the role of baptism for the believer. And so we're going to start in verse 18. We'll read verse 18 and then verse 21. We'll start in verse 18. So Peter reminds us of the gospel, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. What a beautiful summary of the gospel. Let's walk through that together. Christ also suffered suffered once for sins. The important thing to note here is how many times did he suffer? Once. The death of Jesus once for all was enough. 
I think as we think of the gospel, Peter wants to magnify this act on the cross. There isn't a need for another Savior to come because what Jesus did was big enough, it was magnificent enough, it was powerful enough. What we couldn't do on our own year after year after year, bringing animals into the sanctuary, killing them on behalf of the sins of the people, right? What wasn't working for us now works once and for all at the cross. Magnifying this amazing work that the Son of God performed on our behalf. And then he says, for our sin. So it's important to understand that you and I, you and I lay behind the shadow of the cross, right? And before Jesus dies, we, lay, we, we stand before the cross guilty. Each one of us, each one of us, from the person who grew up in the church, right, in here, who, who, who can't remember not believing in Jesus, to the person who maybe is 30 or 40 years old, and this is your first time in church. Each one of us, because of our, because of our sinful nature, because of our sinful acts, our sinful words, we deserve to be on that cross, right? And so Jesus has, the gospel is that Jesus, the Son of God, has come on our behalf. He was nailed to the cross once and for all for our sins. The righteous for the unrighteous. Now, this is one of the hardest parts of the gospel for me to wrap my mind around. I'm good with, with, with imagining and wrapping my mind around the righteousness of Christ. I get it. He's the son of God. He's perfect. He's holy. I read the gospels and I see it lived out. I have no trouble believing that he is righteous. I have no trouble believing that I am unrighteous, unfit, unworthy, undeserving. I'm good with both of those things. But the part that, that just rattles me to the core in a good way is when Jesus takes his righteousness and he extends it to somebody like me who's unrighteous and says, here, put on my righteousness. And Peter reminds us that that's what happens in the gospel. When a person believes in Jesus and Jesus alone, Jesus takes his righteousness and he wraps it around us. He clothes us in it. It's now our new identity. And that baffles me. The righteous for the unrighteous that he might bring us to God. That he might bring us to God. When we get the righteousness of Jesus, we get Jesus. This is what makes, for me, the prosperity gospel so absurd. The point of the gospel is we get him. We are brought to him. We've been made... We've been given access to him. God has come near to us. That's the point of the gospel. Not that I would get a bunch of junk to store up in my house until my next garage sale, right? And so we need to be, I believe we need to be really cautious about the things that we accredit and attribute to God, right? Versus the things that we store up around ourselves and say, oh, look at how much God loves me. I have all this stuff. What about the believer who has trust Jesus as much as you do, who lives in a remote village, who's hungry right now, who woke up this morning, had to make a decision between his meal or his children's meal? Still loves Jesus, right? What's the point of the gospel? He gets Jesus. And, and, and Peter reminds us of that. The righteous for the unrighteous, and he has brought us near to God. 
putting to death, being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. We could spend a lot of time here, but the point is this. Not that I am now a perfect person, but my identity has completely changed and the old me has been put to death. At the moment I believe in Jesus, that's what takes place. And so as I'm being baptized, there's this beautiful symbolism, not just of washing and cleansing, but of actually being put to death. Those of you who've been baptized, it it can be just kind of a, a phobic moment for a minute. As you go back under the water, somebody else has their hands on you, and for a moment it feels a little treacherous, okay? Symbolically, what we're seeing is we're seeing burial. We're seeing a burial, we're saying that the old me has already died. The old me has been buried with Jesus, and by faith, I have been raised to walk in a new life. That's my new identity. This is another place where I think we struggle. Every time the old us attempts to come back alive, the way that I describe it, and I don't put this out there as a perfect illustration, if you come from the country and you've ever killed a snake, and the snake's head has been cut off, but yet for sometimes hours, that thing still looks like it's alive, right? Slithering around, wiggling around. Kids, don't try it. Um, It's really cool, but let your parents do it. But here's the point. At the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, he has severed the head of the enemy, rendered him as good as dead, okay? And as we trust in Christ, we put our faith in Christ, the old us is as good as dead. Now, at times, it still looks like it's alive. Old thought patterns, old habits, sneak up on us and tempt us and try to talk us back into an old identity, right? But the point is this, that the head of the snake has been severed at the moment you believe. The old you has been rendered dead. And the new you is alive to live in the spirit. Now this is the gospel. And so Jesus, or Peter starts here with this beautiful reminder of what is true, what we have believed. And then he transitions, as we'll see in just a second, to baptism. Look at what he says in verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, it's important to walk through this word for word. If we're not careful, we'll read it real quick, and we'll, and we'll read into this, oh, I need to be baptized to be saved. It's the baptism that saves me. And actually, Peter's actually saying the opposite of that. Not the removal of dirt. I'm talking about something that happens deep inside of you. And so what he says is this, baptism which corresponds to this now saves you. The word correspond here is a really important word. It means this. It means a thing that is formed after something else or a certain pattern. It's almost like an echo. It's not the real thing. It's just a following, and it sounds like the real thing. So if I stand in a canyon and I scream at the top of my lungs, and then I quit screaming, and then you hear this pattern of this echo, that's the same word here for correspond. It's a reflection of a greater reality. It's a counterpart. It's a resemblance of what is actually taking place. Okay, so think of it like that, like an echo. So if we bring it into baptism, baptism then is the echo of the reality of our salvation. It's a, it corresponds to our salvation. It's connected to. It's meant to reflect something, to resemble something, or to echo something that has already taken place inside of our hearts. 
Baptism serves as the outward expression and representation of the inward decision and transformation that takes place when we trust Jesus. Baptism is an outward symbol reflecting an inward transformation that has already taken place inside the life of the Christian. So for the person who's getting into the waters, what they're saying is, I want to tell you what has already happened in me. I'm following in obedience to Jesus. I'm making a public declaration of my allegiance. I'm letting you know where my faith rests. So as the person is baptized under the water, what they're saying to all of us is, my life has already been hidden in Christ. And they're buried. And as they're raised out of the water, they're saying, and I've been raised to walk in a new life. And I want to proclaim this publicly. It's an outward expression, symbol, reflection of an inward transformation. And so that's why Peter goes on to say, not as removal from dirt from the body. I'm not talking about what happens on the outside. I'm talking about this baptism, this water on the outside, corresponds with something that has happened on the inside. It is an appeal to God for a good conscience. That's an an appeal of faith that brings about a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what I want to do is um, spend just a, a moment looking at a few a passage of scripture that describes this inward transformation. Starting in Ephesians 4, the Apostle Paul talks about what has taken place in our lives once we have trusted in Jesus. And here's what Paul says in, in verse 21 of Ephesians 4. He says, Assuming that you have heard about him, this is Jesus, and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desire. So put it off or die to it and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. And so baptism is a symbol of that. I'm putting off the old self, putting on the new self. This is an interesting fact about the church um, that uh, in another place, Paul talks about basically unclothing yourself of your old self and then reclothing or redressing with a new self. In the early church, at one point, they took him literally at his word, and for a season, they did baptisms nude. To, to, to just to literally, right, communicate my old self, I'm unclothing from my old unrighteous deeds, walking into the baptism, being baptized and coming up, and I got a new set of clothes to put on, symbolizing the newness of righteousness that we have. In Christ, as you can imagine, this is one of the things that took the baptismal from outside to indoors and and led to ladies getting involved in baptism, being the ones baptizing, as you can imagine. It didn't last very long, thank God. Uh, but, But literally, this transformation illustrated, off with the old and on with the new. And that's the point of baptism. Galatians 3 27 says, for as many of you were baptized in the Christ, have put on Christ. He's speaking to the church. Every one of you who's been baptized, you are baptized because you have put on Christ. 1 John 1.9, this beautiful promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the inward cleansing we were talking about, right? The righteous for the unrighteous. We've been given the righteousness of Christ, completely cleansed. What, where does this take place? At the moment we confess. It's a promise from God. You don't have to come up and get rebaptized every time you sin. Right? Forgiveness comes through what? Faith and confession. When you confess, 
your sins. He is faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you. So this illustration of being cleansed, right? It's an outward illustration of something that happens inwardly at the moment we believe and confess. Colossians 2, verse 12, Paul says to the church, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. This beautiful symbolism of being buried with Christ and raised to walk with him. Romans chapter 6, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, this is an encouragement to the church in their struggle, ongoing struggle with sin. He's reminding the church of who they already are in Christ. And he's saying, don't you remember this, church? Don't you remember this, Christians? That all of us have been baptized into Christ, that meaning we are baptized into his death. Our formal self, former self, right? The head has been severed. The former self is as good as dead. Verse four, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in a newness of life. Now, two cautions here for for us. One, regardless of what your denominational background is or, or what experiences you've had in terms of modes of baptism, one would be to too closely link baptism with salvation to make baptism the mode of salvation or the mode of forgiveness. We see clearly here, those who received the word were baptized. Those who believed were baptism. There's a, there's a faith transaction that takes place between the person and God first that's inward that gets expressed then correspondingly or, or outwardly, symbolically in baptism. So I think one caution is that we somehow connect them too closely. But here's another caution, that we somehow separate them too far apart. Not talking about length of time, I'm talking about in in importance and emphasis. And so we want to be clear, we are saved by grace through faith and faith alone, not by works so that no person may boast. But for the person who has trusted in Jesus and said, I've given my life to follow him, I believe in him, very quickly after that, Jesus says, here's how I want you to profess this publicly, right? Put on this t-shirt, put this fish on your car, nope. Jesus says, here's what I want the church to do. This is what will mark you outwardly as mine. Be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So I think there could be two dangers. One, we we too closely link salvation and baptism. But the other one would be we we separate them too far. And we have this nonchalant casualness about baptism, making it a, nah, should we ever get around to it? Nah, if you want to get baptized, you can. You've been baptized 22 times? Oh, 23, just come on. And never stopping to actually look into the... This amazing, beautiful act of worship that Jesus ordained for those who believe. And so in just a moment, we're going to get to watch a believer come before you and profess his faith in baptism. If you're taking notes, baptism symbolizes that a believer has confessed their sins to Jesus and he has forgiven, this is really important, put it in all capital letters, all of their sins. All. Look, look right here. If you've trusted in Jesus for your salvation, he has forgiven all, all of them, all of your sins. All of them. All of them. And not only that, he has cleansed you from all unrighteousness. All of it. You're either guilty or you're not. You're not just kind of cleaned or kind of not guilty. 
You either take on the righteousness of Christ or nothing at all. And the promise is that when we confess our sins, he cleanses us of all unrighteousness. Baptism symbolizes that the believer's former life has been buried with Christ and they have been raised to walk in a new life. What is a new life? First of all, it means that the Holy Spirit of God, as we just read in Acts 2, has been imparted to you. And the Holy Spirit of God is now living in you, bringing about, stirring about an abundance of life. You, know, you, know, you now have joy where you used to have sorrow. You now see the world more clearly where you used to see it cloudy. Your motives have shifted and changed. Where your ambitions used to be to promote self and to, put to, to work for self and to pursue making yourself known, that's, that's just shifted now. Now stirring in your heart are different affections, different motives. You now desire to live for him, to, to, to speak about him, to lift his name up. That's what it means to walk in a newness of life. When God looks at you, he sees you as perfectly righteous. At Solid Rock, I'm going to read just our statement of faith to you this morning. We believe that Jesus initiated and commanded the church to participate in two ordinances. These two ordinances are baptism and communion, which visibly and symbolically express the gospel. Though they are not a means to salvation when celebrated by the church in genuine faith, these ordinances confirm and nourish the believer and call sinners to repentance and salvation by proclaiming the gospel. Specifically about baptism, water baptism, it's only intended for in the individual who has received the saving benefits of Christ's atoning work. Baptism is an essential step in becoming a disciple of Jesus Christ. Therefore, in obedience to Christ's command, and as a testimony to God, the church, oneself, and to the world, a believer should be baptized by being immersed in, wa in water in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And as a reminder, water baptism is a visual and symbolic demonstration of a person's union with Christ in the likeness of his death and resurrection. It signifies that the believer's former way of life has been put to death and vividly depicts a person's release from the mastery of sin. Amen. Though you may still struggle with sin, you've been released from the mastery of sin if you're in Christ. Sin no longer has a ruling place in your life. The Lord Jesus Christ now does. I want to end today by praying for us, and uh, then we're going we're gonna to watch someone be baptized. And as we get ready to pray, um, let me just first say to you, if you're here today and you have not trusted in Jesus and Jesus alone for your salvation, the forgiveness of your sins, Right, the newness of life, the righteousness of God, if you haven't truly trusted him for that, I want to encourage you to do something today. Um, our prayer partners will be at the back of the room today, both after the sermon and also after the service. If that's you and you're ready to become a Christian today, I'm going to invite you to approach one of our prayer partners and let them talk with you and pray with you about becoming a Christian. I'm going to pray for us now, and um, then we're going to shift to baptism. Our worship team is going to also come back up. Let's pray together.